has their own prayer. It usually centers on something that you want, and your prayer often reflects how badly you want it. Jesus' audience saw the same things that we see today. Everyone around them has their own prayer, their own way of getting good things to come their way, their own judgmental attitudes against those who don't think like they do. It's no wonder the disciples were confused. And so Jesus pulls his disciples together in what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to hang out today right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to hang out today right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. But I want you to see a context. I want you to see people around them who are praying their own prayers. Who want what it is that they want. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and their hypocrisy between what they say they do and what they do. And on the other side, you have the pagans and their mindless repetition, their saying of words over and over again, the phrases, hopefully, if they say it enough times, that God's going to pay attention to them and respond to their prayers. To which Jesus replies, don't do that. Instead, do this. It's interesting that right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is this context of prayer. And prayer itself is sandwiched in between two other acts of righteousness as well. Giving to the poor and fasting. Our devotion to God has benefits in here and out there. Prayer unites giving and fasting in a really neat way. We take from ourselves fasting... And we share with others. Giving. But if you stop and think about it, neither one of them really makes any sense without the prayer connection to God. Why would you deprive yourself unless there was something bigger than yourself? Why would you give to anyone without some kind of assurance that there is a giver who is going to give to you more than you're giving away to others? That's what makes what Jesus is about to say so countercultural, so upside down from what his audience would have experienced. And to be honest with you, it's still as countercultural today as it was back then. We want what we want, we pray for what we want. But to a culture that craves the adoration of the online mob, To a people who desire the applause that comes from their self-righteous view of the world. To a culture that honestly cannot fathom the idea of withholding something from themselves. Who cringe at the thought of delayed gratification. Who simply will not even begin to process the possibility even for a moment that they might just be wrong. Jesus simply says this. This then. It's how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be their name. Jesus, you notice Jesus doesn't tell us where to pray. He doesn't tell us what time to pray. He doesn't tell us how to dress for prayer. There is no admonition here for heads bowed, eyes closed. 
All we have are 57 Greek words. And in those 57 Greek words, Jesus gently calls us to the upside down world of kingdom prayer. Turning our ambition to align God's will with our agenda and do the opposite. To turn our will toward his agenda. That it's okay to put God's glory before our needs. Because our father's agenda is a good one. That's even how he even begins the prayer. He calls him that. Our father. This entire prayer hinges on one key concept of prayer that we cannot forget. Our father loves us. Think about how Peter would describe prayer in his letter to the exiles. When he said, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I know how I want this verse to end. And it's not that. Cast all your anxieties on him and he will give you what you want. Cast all your anxieties on him and he will solve your problems in the exact way that you feel those problems need to be solved. He doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, he says something infinitely better. He says, give me all the junk in your life because I love you. The one to whom all creation bows invites me to call him Father. And not just my father loves me. It's my father, my father loves me. This isn't just anyone who loves me. It's, it's my father in heaven. To paraphrase John Stott, my Jesus isn't just good. He is great. Jesus, this isn't about a place. This is about a description of a God who holds the universe in his hands who lives outside of the box, who created the box, and who came into the box to be Emmanuel. God with us. There can only be one word to describe that name. Hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Now God's already holy, whether we admit it or not. Whether we choose to call him holy is really irrelevant to the discussion. He is holy. The question is, what are you going to do with that? That's why I think hallowed is a great word. Because hallowed doesn't mean holy. Hallowed means treated as such. Hallowed means treated as holy. Our Father in heaven. We will treat your name as holy. And it's in that context that Jesus throws another amazing truth in our laps. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. But throw some truth your way. Our God has needs. Does that surprise you? That our God has needs, that there are needs our God has created us to fulfill. He has chosen you to address his concerns, to want what he wants, and to realize that in achieving his will in our lives, we actually get what we truly want and need. Does that surprise you? 
when we pray for what we want, we often come to that prayer with an assumption that we know what we want. When we pray to God for what we want, we come into it with an idea. An idea is that we know what we want. And we take what we want and we bring what we want before the Father because we know what we want. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, there is an assumption here that we know what God wants. That there's an implicit awareness of what that kingdom looks like. What God's will actually is. And here's where it gets tricky. That we actually have a desire to make it happen. And as we begin to see the kingdom of God and his dominion over everything and all of creation, then there is nothing, as Abraham Kuyper noted, that Christ does not look at and say, mine. And when we begin to see his will as his heart to stop at nothing, to pay any price, to restore lost people back into relationship with himself, then our prayer for what we want is interrupted by a very uncomfortable truth. God's glory comes first. God's glory comes before our needs. It is the only prayer that will always get a yes from God. What prayer can you pray that will always be answered? Yes. Just one. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. God's name becomes more holy on earth like it is in heaven. God's kingdom here looks more and more like his kingdom there. God's will here looks more and more like God's will there. Are you starting to see it? Because once you do see it, once you begin to move in that direction, I want you to catch Jesus' tone. It changes from your to our what he says. Give us today our daily bread. There's an interesting tidbit here. The the word that Matthew uses uh, for daily, it's not used in any other writings anywhere. And I mean nowhere. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's not found in any writings of the day by any authors, pagan or religious. The word's not there. One time, right here. In fact, many of the early church fathers could not wrap their heads around the idea that Jesus could simply be saying, pray for what you need today. So they allegorized it. It became, uh, this became a lesson on communion. The bread here must be spiritual, like the invisible bread of the word of God. That must have been what Jesus was talking about. It took John Calvin over 400 years ago to offer the idea that maybe, just maybe, and I'm paraphrasing here, that that idea is stupid. That maybe what Jesus meant was daily bread. 
What we need today in order to usher in the kingdom of God and his will in the lives of everyone we encounter. Remember, context matters. And if our prayer before we begin is that his name be hallowed, his name be treated as holy, his kingdom come, his will be done. If that is the context, if that is the foundation of the prayer, then give us today our daily bread might have something to do with his name and his kingdom and his will. Maybe that our prayer in the morning would be just enough for today. Maybe our prayer in the evening would be, Lord willing, enough for tomorrow. I suppose we shouldn't be too shocked by this. I mean, I'm not really sure our prayers have a whole lot to do with daily bread. I can't really remember the last time I prayed for daily bread. Really. What do I need in order to live today? What do I need to honor God today? Food, clothing, shelter. If you read Matthew 6, he gets into all of that later on in the chapter. Love from the Father and the community he's blessed us with. I don't really know if we even understand what daily means. I think sometimes we turn our noses up. We hear, we hear the words prosperity gospel and some of us, our radar goes off, doesn't it? We hear the words prosperity gospel and we freeze. Is that biblical? Oh my goodness, I, I, I can't, I, I, I can't imagine praying for millions of dollars and a, a private jet. And that if I just pray to God, that God will make me rich. The thought of that kind of just makes us hesitate, doesn't it? As it probably should. But do we subconsciously appraise our spiritual value to God? Do we judge our relationship to God by how much bread he gives us beyond daily bread? And here Jesus is praying for just enough for ourselves for today. So if we're praying just enough for ourselves for the day, that God would give us enough for us to be able to live out his name being hallowed, his kingdom coming, his will being done, then where does the more come into play? Where does the more than the daily bread come into play? Well, I think it comes into play with others. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Here's where I think the more comes into play. I think this is more important than daily bread. And here's why. Because without daily bread, my body is in danger. If I don't get daily bread long enough, I'm in trouble. Physically, I'm not going to be able to stand it if I don't have daily bread for very long, if I don't have the essential needs, the food, the clothing, the shelter, if I don't have that provision on a daily basis, it's not going to be too long before I'm going to begin to suffer. However, without forgiveness, my soul 
is in danger. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What's the worst thing that could happen to me? I die? That's it? That's the single worst thing that could happen to me? Are you kidding? I get to die and go be with my in the presence of my father forever and ever and ever and ever? You seriously, that's Satan, that's what you got? Death? I'm not too concerned about that. If God chooses not to give me what I need to survive on a daily basis and I go to be with him, that works for me. But my soul is impacted. Not by what God doesn't give me, but by what I refuse to give to others. Jesus' prayer calls us to the sovereignty of God. This amazing power of God leads us to a heart to meet his needs, his kingdom, his name, his will. It puts us in a position of complete and total dependence on him for even the most basic of things. And that incredible gift can lead us to one of two places. It can either lead us to a place where we bask in God's forgiveness of our debt or can lead us to a place of judgment for others who have sinned against us. Now, you may not know this, but there are scary verses in the Bible. What do I mean by scary verses? I mean verses that are scary. I mean verses that, to be honest with you, I'd rather they not be there. There's one of them in this passage. For if you forgive other people when they trespass against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive your trespasses. If you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you find in Matthew chapter 7 that the road to heaven is very narrow. And the gate is very small. And you find that on that day, many will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not do incredible things? Heal the sick, cast out demons in your name, in your name. You hear that? And Jesus will say to them, away from me, you evildoers. For I never knew you. Hear it? There are scary verses in the Bible. How do I know that I'm a Christ follower? What is it about my character that allows me to say I am a part of this kingdom of God? And we are so quick to say, well, I love people. Doesn't the Bible say that Christians will be known by their love? Yes, sir, it does. So what does it mean to love one another? Ah, That's probably the question we ought to be asking. Jesus tells us, at least here in Matthew chapter 6, it means to forgive. It's not that God won't forgive you because of your lack of forgiveness. I just question whether or not he can. It was Michael Green who noted that it is impossible for a hand that is clenched in hate and anger to receive anything. 
kingdom of God is ushered into your world when his grace flows through you in forgiveness for those who have hurt you. I am convinced we live in a world today where people are quote unquote canceled. We even have a term for it. We call it cancel culture. Where people out there in the world are, are canceled by the culture for having the wrong idea about a certain thing at a certain point in time. And when those people try to apologize, when they try to say, we're sorry for thinking the wrong way, they're crushed by the social mob. Your repentance out there will never be enough. Your capitulation out there, your bending the knee to the world will never ingratiate yourself into the larger community. The world hates you. But in the midst of this incredible challenge lies an amazing opportunity. How cool would it be for your church to be known as the place where repentance is met with forgiveness? How awesome would it be for countryside to be known as a place of welcoming and love and grace and mercy. And when someone comes and says, I'm tired of my kingdom being in the forefront of my life. I'm tired of my will being done. I want his name to be exalted. I want his kingdom to come. I want his will to be done. That you would be the first to say, welcome. That you would be the first to offer grace and love. My God has forgiven my debt. We now forgive yours. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I've struggled with this verse. Um, How could God lead us into temptation. I, I think James had it right when he said this. He said, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. I think he's pretty clear on that. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and, what's the word? Enticed. Anybody here do any fishing? Like to fish? James uses a fishing word here. You know the image, right? The the fish is safely in the bottom of the pond, hiding behind a rock. He's got his little family there. He's sitting on his little fish sofa, watching his little fish TV, protected from everything around him. When all of a sudden he hears that familiar sound at the top of the water, and he looks up, and here's this pretty little lure with little shaky thingies. And he looks at that little thingy and he thinks, I want that little thingy. I'm hungry for that little thingy. And what does he do? He gets a little closer and he gets a little closer and he gets a little closer. And eventually he takes a bite. And as he takes a bite, the hook pulls. That's a fishing word. Jesus and James' analogies of a fish. Enticed by a lure from the safety of the deeper water. How does the evil one catch us? 
I have a theory. I think that one of Satan's greatest tools is our own delusion. The idea that we've somehow achieved what Jesus is praying about here. Now, I know what your first response would be. It would be the same as mine. It would be to disagree. Oh, we're not. We know we're not there yet, Tracy. We're not perfect, Tracy. As a matter of fact, we're far from perfect. I'm reminding you for just a moment of what Jesus said. This then is how you should pray. What do we pray for? We pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. Now, what do we pray for? Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? But is that what you really want? What if God's kingdom and his will in your life mean that you get daily bread and nothing else? Still okay with it? What if God's kingdom and his will in your life mean that it's time to forgive the person that hurts you? For the sake of your soul and the health of the body. Still good with it? You see, everybody has their own prayer. It usually centers on something that you want. And your prayer often reflects how badly you want it. And I propose to you that the greatest temptation we face is the belief that what we want is what we think God wants. I think Satan's greatest tool in his arsenal is to convince you that you and he are on the same page deliver us that's a command by the way deliver us from evil Uh, when I was in junior high my buddy set up a a bicycle ramp outside of my house and I remember this very well we used an old board and a concrete block kind of just an old cheap flimsy plywood board and my buddies all went first and I went last I went last for reason because I was scared I'd never done anything like this before and I didn't realize I probably should have gone first Because by the time I got up there, that board was in pretty sad shape. And to be honest with you, I didn't really know what I was doing. I remember I I went up the board, and as I went up the board, the board snapped. And my bicycle wheel hit that concrete block. And you know what happened after that. The bicycle and I went together. Then I left the bicycle behind. I never knocked the wind out of myself in my entire life. And if you've ever if you've ever had the blessing of having the wind knocked out of you, you understand what it is I'm talking about. I really thought for sure I was going to see Jesus in that moment. My buddies ran to my parents' house and ran into the living room. My dad was sitting in the living room and they said, Tracy's dead. <laughs> 
and um, I'll never forget the moment. I, my father came out. He, my father ran. My father grew up in the Great Depression, fought in World War II, coal miner all his life. He didn't run anywhere. He ran to me. And there I was, bleeding, and bruised, and banged up, scared. Why do I remember this story? I, I remember my dad. I remember my dad getting down on his hands and knees and sliding his arms underneath my body and lifting me up. And I remember him carrying me back to the house like a small child. And in that moment, I didn't care at all what my buddies thought about my dad carrying a junior high boy. I was just grateful. He was there to carry me home. When you pray to God, deliver me. It is not a gentle request from a brave soul who has it all together. It is the panicked cry of a child who has lost his way and needs his daddy to carry him home. I do not know what God's kingdom looks like because I am stubborn and foolish and selfish and small. So I pray for his kingdom, not mine, to come. I do not know what God's will is in every situation because my will keeps getting in the way. So I pray for his will, not mine, to be done. I do not know what daily bread looks like. I have been blessed so often by more than I could ever ask for or imagine that I cannot fathom what it's like to have a little oil in my jar. So I pray for enough so that I can truly understand my complete and utter dependence on Him. I do not know what forgiveness looks like because I am convinced that my standard of grace must be the same as His and that my justice is righteous and my anger is justified. So I pray that God will forgive me with the same enthusiasm as I forgive others. And as I say those words to myself, I weep. Because I know the truth. And into the mindless repetition of the prayer words that I think God likes to hear, and by the way, pagans aren't the only ones who know how to pray mindless prayer. Into the midst of my selfish desire for my own kingdom and my own will. For my absolute craving for more of myself and less for those who hurt me. Jesus speaks. This then is how you should pray. I'd like to end today by praying that prayer together.
I'd like you to participate. And I think we should pray maybe more the way they prayed in Jesus' day. There's nothing wrong with head bowed, eye closed. Nothing wrong at all with that kind of prayer. But I want to pray today like they might have prayed in Jesus' day. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you, if you would, be so kind as to stand. And I want you to pray, not with head bowed, not with eyes closed, but I want you to pray with eyes wide open. I want you to pray with eyes toward heaven. I want you to lift up your hands, your open hands to heaven in the hope and the knowledge that you will receive from God what it is that you are asking for. And let's pray the Lord's Prayer together this morning. I'll start. You repeat. Are you ready? Let's stand together. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen.